0: Welcome you all uh, for this uh, afternoon's book discussion uh, on the on the Indian Ocean. Mm-hmm. So we have the new book here uh, by Frederick Gar and uh, Jean-Loup uh, Saman. I hope I got the French <laughs> names right. So we, uh, so it is uh, book is called the Indian Ocean as a new political and security region. Uh, Frederick has been uh, a senior is a senior fellow at the European Council on Foreign Affairs is also a non-resident senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Uh, Jean-Luc is here, a senior research fellow at the Middle East uh, Institute of the National University of Singapore, and is also associated with the French Institute of uh, International Relations, or IFRI. Right. I mean, so, so I'm not going to give a, a longer introduction to the two speakers. Uh, both of them have been in the region for a, for a long time, and they're quite familiar with the the historical evolution, as well as the current dynamics of the the Indian Ocean. Uh, Firstly, let me say that uh, books on Indian Ocean are rare these days, because the industry has moved to Indo-Pacific, that the whole focus is so much on the Indo-Pacific, it's often uh, Indian Ocean as seen as simply subsumed by the the debate on the uh, uh, Indo-Pacific. But I think, it's important i think to look at indian ocean uh, on its own right as well uh, because uh, if indian ocean itself was a large entity which one of the things the book argues uh, cannot be uh, constituted under a single security architecture the indo pacific is even more broader so therefore even more harder to 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 pin down i think what the what the the, the book looks at i would say uh, what we, what we might call a third phase in the evolution of the Indian Ocean uh, over the last two hundred years, if you will, uh, you had a phase from eighteen twenties onwards till nineteen forty seven, when the post Napoleonic Wars saw the transformation of the Indian Ocean uh, into a British lake. Uh, the domination of Britain, uh, having won its wars against the European rivals, saw the establishment. Uh, of a comprehensive structure under the British ages, and the combination of uh, British Royal Navy and the Indian, the resources of the undivided subcontinent uh, together produced uh, the resources, uh, and the uh, the sole superpower was in alignment with the the biggest region of the uh, of the of the Indian Ocean, uh, produced a, a a set of conditions under which uh, the stability security could be organized under a under a broad a single single framework. Uh, and that phase collapsed, of course, after the uh, British left, the partition of the subcontinent, and the decolonization uh, of across the across the Indian Ocean region. And we saw for almost uh, last uh, 60, 70 years a period of fragmentation. Uh, the attempts, of course, there were attempts to construct a single architecture, but I think the fragmentation uh, it was was quite uh, serious. And uh, today, what we're seeing is really uh, the emergence of a new phase uh, in which. Uh, which is what the book looks at of how do we deal with the new phase and i think it looks at a number of factors that are that are shaping the region one of course the most important being the rise of china uh, historically we had all the great powers coming from europe uh, from the west into the indian ocean now we have an asian power this is not the first Asian power the japanese tried uh, couldn't succeed but today china is coming in uh, into the region and, uh, and unlike Japan, China is a much bigger, much stronger economy today, and it brings in its own weight into the uh, into the Indian Ocean. We've also seen how China's Belt and Road Initiative, uh, its land and sea components intersect in the Indian Ocean, uh, especially in the, in the subcontinent. So therefore, what we have, while we think of the BRIS2 segments, are both uh, in some ways uh, come together to this region. The book also looks at the return of Europe in some form, uh, the, although they frame it as Indo-Pacific, uh, the potential European role uh, is coming back, uh, having left the Indian Ocean in the post-colonization uh, phase. Uh, they're coming back in some form. Uh, the, one of the chapters in the book uh, looks at it. Uh, and then you have, actually, the rise of the Gulf uh, as a, and the Middle East and the emergence of a number of other middle powers who are reshaping the region. I think the, we are in the Middle East Institute, I'll just say a word. Uh, I think the Gulf is uh, deeply underestimated. Uh, uh, The dramatic expansion of Gulf capital is already producing its effects uh, all across the Indian Ocean. And the countries of the Gulf uh, seem to do what uh, France and Britain used to do in the past, interfere in other countries, uh, send in armies, uh, build foreign ports, uh, everything we see happening from the Middle East today. So I think uh, that one of the contributions of this book is to really look at the uh, emergence of the Gulf and it also draws in Africa into the discussion on the on the Indian Ocean. I know some of our African friends call it the Afrasian Ocean, uh, but it's here. Uh, I think in India and in South Asia, we don't pay enough attention to uh, Africa's centrality to the Indian Ocean. I think one of the things the book does is to bring in. And the book looks at the, the larger question of uh, potential security architectures in the Indian Ocean. Uh, so I think uh, this is really a welcome addition, and we really... Uh, I look forward to listening from uh, Frederick and uh, Jean luc uh, on the uh, on the book, and then we'll they speak for about 10, 12 minutes each, and then we'll go for the uh, discussion after that. Frederick.
1: Thank you very much, Rajan, thank you all for being here. today. I'm impressed and a bit surprised by the uh, ball the quantity and the quality of the audience on top of it. Uh, just let me just say a few words about a book again. This is a book which is uh, which is part of a process. This is a book that we wrote uh, while sitting in different part of the Indian Ocean, different part of the world, actually. Uh, and for both of us, shifting parts. We started talking about it when I was in DC and jean Lu was in uh, Abu Dhabi. We continued when I was in Paris and jean Lu was here in Singapore, and so on. And we never saw each other during all that time because COVID made sure that we did not. Uh, <laughs> we did not talk to well. We did talk to one another, but. Uh, uh we did not never really had done together to work on a book and and actually uh, uh exchange ideas or uh, not the way we would have liked to so at the same time this is a book which benefited from COVID because the good point is that it okay. gave everybody's time to write and uh, we were no exception and this is also a book which suffered from COVID because although we had connections in the entire region or at least part of the uh, in, in for some part at least especially Africa partial connection with the region, we certainly don't pretend that we knew everything and we had all the, uh, the the perspective in the region as much as we would have liked to. And from that perspective, then uh, COVID affected the, the, the book. Uh, what we would have probably gained from uh, such interview is a more prospective view as to some, what part of the region are actually doing and the way they look at it. Now, uh, This is, as I said earlier, the the, the provisional and the very provisional conclusion of a reflection, which is still ongoing. Even between the time that we started writing the book and the time that we actually sent it to the publisher and so on, a number of things happened. And and more more to the point, thematic change, or if they didn't change, they're important, the nature of the, the, the thematic change. Uh, and as Raja said, when we started the book, um, the Indo-Pacific debate was in full bloom. In any case, Raja had already published uh, Samundramatan, and we could not ignore it. So uh, uh, it was not out of uh, this that we didn't really speak about it. But we we did decide to focus specifically on the Indian Ocean for at least three reasons. The first was. Uh, that they were already concerned about having not enough Indo in the Indo-Pacific. So it was interesting to look at it. Second, there was not many books written on the region. There had been a flurry of books, at least in Europe, on the Indian Ocean in the early 80s, then a little bit in the mid, mid uh, 2000, and nothing in between. So it was perhaps worth considering what was happening since precisely many things had had been happening. Uh, It was also obvious already at that time that the Indian Ocean was much less structured than the the Pacific, and was to a large extent looking for a structure of its own. There were many attempts, particularly by India, which certainly was the most active of all the, the actors in the region, to do things, but I mean it, we we felt at least rightly or wrongly that it was still in a search for something which was not yet completely uh, completely uh, finalized, and from our perspective, we're both European, so we understood already even before the uh, the publication of the uh, Europe strategy for cooperation in Indo-Pacific that the Indian Ocean was indeed the Europe Europe's gateway to the Indo-Pacific. Uh, it was at the time obvious for us French. It was much less obvious for a number of Europeans, and I may, I dare say, that it's still not that obvious for a number of Europeans yet. However. Irrespective of whether we did consider the Indian Ocean in isolation or as part of the Indo-Pacific, there were new dynamics emerging. This is what we try to focus on. If we look at the uh, Indian Ocean in the first decade of this uh, of the century, what do we see? We see, as Raja indicated, a space which is politically at least very fragmented. We can argue about an Indian Ocean culture and all those things, and it certainly exists. There have been interaction between the various sides of the notion for centuries, but politically, this is a space which is politically very, very fragmented. Second, when we discuss about security, we have a clear distinction between hard uh, security and soft security. Between uh, it, you know, and and if we look at it in, again in the first uh, the first decade of the century, is the core of the discussion? Are we discuss mostly of piracy. But we're also at uh, just about to witness a transformation of all that. Uh, piracy, first of all, was the beginning of a new phase, the arrival of China in it. I mean, if China came to Djibouti, because he was nicely invited by all our Anglo Saxon friends to uh, visit and establish himself and be part of the piracy, uh, <coughs> the, the fight against piracy which they nicely did for themselves and for nobody else, but they established a base which was much bigger than anybody else's base in the region. Uh, and by far, if you compare the French base, for example, and the, the, the Chinese one, we are talking of tenta, uh, base of ten thousand for 10,000 uh, uh, people in the Chinese one, this is something huge and which was bound to have consequences beyond simply what it was initially meant for. Uh, But we also, everything changed with the arrival of China. Piracy became something else. So we no longer had a, uh, how could I say? We no longer had a clear distinction between what what was the common good and what was natural interest, because everything was mixed. Because every single sub-strategic issues became the opportunity to pursue strategic interests, to transform it into something which had nothing to do with the initial phase. Today, if we look at the Indian Ocean, piracy is no longer really an issue. And if you look at all um, insurance company, then the Indian Ocean is no longer a region really at risk. But, but, IU you fishing is. That's interesting. Who would have said not so long ago, that uh, IU fishing would become an issue and a strategic one in the Indian Ocean too. People here probably knew it because it, was, it had been a, a problem in the South China Sea for decades. This was not the case so far in the Indian Ocean. Today, you ask everybody from uh, Iran to South Africa, and they all complain about Chinese IU, issue, IU fishing. The reason why I did mention those two it's not just because they are the extreme geographically, it's also because they are both allied with China, which means that even allies of China can complain about China practices in the region. Now, the, the, uh, beyond the fact, I mean, they were, China is obviously not the only country to practice how you fishing. China transformed the nature of it because it did use it for strategic purposes, for territorial claim and so on not in the same way that in the South China Sea. It couldn't have the same claims in the Indian Ocean, but it used it nevertheless for political purpose and quite effectively. So, you know, what I'm trying to get at is that we went from problems which are basically law and order issues affecting the whole region to one degree or another to something which became really strategic and transforming not the way we look at them, but also the way we look at each other. Because if everybody becomes a, uh, the opportunity to, pur- to pursue strategic purposes, then how can you build trust? What, is the, uh, what are the limitations? What are the definition of everything? You know, Trade used, used to be something else than just uh, what it is now. Uh, it has now become the, the uh, strategic issue by excellence in a way look at the discussion around CREP, look at the decision of uh, around CPTPP and so on. So we started seeing that emerging in the Indian Ocean as well. The so Raja already spoken about the BRI. I won't uh, mention it again. This is also part of this uh, larger issue that I was mentioning. Building infrastructure becomes a strategic problem. It doesn't become a strategic problem, it becomes a strategic problem irrespective of the nature of the infrastructure which is being built. We used to distinguish between uh, critical infrastructure and non critical infrastructure. From a strategic perspective, this no longer exists because this is basically about investment to build infrastructure. Then investment means debt, then debt means dependency, and dependency means whatever the creditor wants it to become. Uh, and when this is in a in a period of polarization like the one that we are now, this is, of course, becoming something else. Of importance And adding to the original conundrum was also, rightly or wrongly, the fear that uh, the role of the U.S. would fade away. And this is a fear, I'm afraid, which has not totally disappeared, which generated a frantic search for partnership, increasing in the process the interconnection between the various subregions of the Indian Ocean, so in a way, the interesting phenomenon that we looked at or tried to look at in, uh, was that China's presence was a vector for many things, some of which was polarization on one side, but also greater unity through the polarization. And therefore, the fragmentation that we we're discussing initially was still there, but less and less, or so in different ways. So based on this consideration, and that will be my last few points, we try to look at the possibility of a meaningful security architecture allowing for the management of regional emerging tensions. I mean, it will surprise nobody if I say that uh, that's probably the notion that the uh, security architecture is the least developed in the Indo-Pacific. At least there is nothing comparable to what we have in the Pacific. And so at least something is Not for lack of trying, but because of uh, the level of development of a number of states in the region. When you look at a partner in the uh, Indian Ocean, you basically look at India. And you look at India. And at the margin, you talk to Singapore because Singapore looks mostly to uh, the east, Indonesia looks mostly to the east, and so on and so forth. And you wonder about the position of Africa and what you can do with your African partner. And you have really no answer. So this is the set of problems that are set. I mean, every cooperation is based, A, on the availability of strategically meaningful partners, B, on the level of political trust. In the Indian Ocean, you don't have much of these two factors anyway. So uh, this is one of the problems we saw. Needless to say that in this context, IRA is certainly something that could eventually become useful, but so far it's still a talking shop. And talking shop is, is happy to remain this way because precisely this is a way to manage attention at the low level, but not to produce anything uh, practical but that kind of, and there is something comparable in a way with the uh, the spirit at least in which the EU was created in the sense that it's very much in the DNA of IRA to avoid every temptation for power politics and I'm of course avoiding the discussion of on the capacities there but at least the, the way it's framed make sure that nothing will happen anyway and this is probably one of the uh, challenges that we meet today in trying to to give it some more substance than it has had in the past. So what we started looking at in the book is also the new format that were emerging. I mean, you're all specialists of the region, you're all specialists in international relations, so those new formats are also new. But multilateral did not exist so long ago. Minilaterals tends to multiply these days. Milaterals, you tend to unite countries which have a convergence of interest and capacity that can complement each other. Uh, And you don't find that everywhere, again, in the Indian Ocean. So, but at the same time, this is a way to make sure that gradually, whatever larger structure exists in the Indian Ocean can uh, be fed by those smaller formats. And this is probably a way to go. So we try to imagine the other book Security architecture, which would link at the same at various level the uh, all all those architecture, they would overlap with each other. They would be interlinked. They would never necessarily correspond with the objective one another. But at the end of the day, they would create something in which uh, comparable to what Chamsan used to call a network of a web of webs. Yes, (laughs) call it if I remember his expression well. This is something that is in the making, and that's also why we say that the book is in the middle of something, a process which is still continuing, which outcome, by the way, is still uncertain in many ways. Thanks. <laughs> thank,
2: thank you, uh, uh, Frederic. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll come back here uh, to the... Um, to the initial question, as Frédéric gave the uh, the big picture uh, uh, on the book, uh, the origin of the book, and uh, uh, in a way, uh, the, the conclusion uh, of the book. Uh, what I'll do is actually look at uh, one specific case, which is the goal states. Uh, and the reason why we wanted also to uh, have one case here is that the origin of the book, as was mentioned before, uh, was the fact that we were witnessing two trends in uh, in the Indian Ocean. One, which is the most well known, the most uh, reported, which is this strategic competition or great power competition, uh, namely between the U.S., China, India. And although we we cannot dismiss ignore that uh, that idea of the Indian Ocean as an arena for competition between uh, uh, powers we always felt like this is a frustrating narrative because the second trend we were identifying was that more and more you have states, uh, literal states of the Indian Ocean that have their own uh, ambitions, that claim their own agency. And we were frustrated, especially with, let's say, the, uh, the think tank or policy narrative uh, in the West or elsewhere that was looking mostly at the Indian Ocean through that lens of great power competition. And in a way, the Indo-Pacific narrative only exacerbates uh, that tendency to look at the region only through that lens. So the book tries as much as possible to reconcile these two trends, to say that, yes, it's about that competition, this deepening of uh, the, the competition between the three main powers in the region. But you add another layer of complexity when you consider that at the same time, you have all these little states uh, that are claiming to become middle powers or to have their own agency, as I said earlier. And this is also, uh, let's say, the, uh, the, the puzzle, the research puzzle here, the, the fact that you have these two uh, trends at the same time. And that's where uh, the Gulf states get into the equation uh, for us. Uh, and what's interesting to d- discuss it in 2023 is that the the topic of the Gulf countries, and here I'll be talking mostly about Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, the UAE. Uh, this is something that would not have really been discussed, let's say, 10 years ago. But more and more in the last years, we've seen these countries... Uh, discussed in the framework of the Indian Ocean. Uh, Historians would say that uh, there has always been ties between the Gulf and the Indian Ocean uh, for different reasons uh, in terms of demographics and uh, the human uh, migration uh, trends, uh, whether we're talking about Gulf, Horn of Africa movements, but also Gulf South Asian uh, movements that didn't start Uh, with the oil boom uh, in the 70s, but it was already uh, there in the early 20th century because of the pearl uh, business. Uh, There's also the cultural religious aspect, Uh, the fact that, in a sense, when you uh, go to the Gulf, they they, they perceive a common uh, tie through the religious uh, aspect, namely Islam. But for us we were not so much interested in these cultural human ties but how in the past 10 years uh, gulf uh, rulers uh, turned these ties into strategic ambitions uh, and you can see that in particular in the Horn of africa uh, in south asia uh, and beyond that between the gulf china ties uh What we've seen over the the last uh, 10 years, as I said, is Gulf countries becoming political, military actors in the Horn of Africa, something that was not uh, really the case before. Uh, In particular, after the beginning of the war in Yemen, you had had both Saudi Arabia and the UAE opening uh, military bases uh, in the Horn of Africa, in Eritrea, in Somalia, Uh, And with a a project uh, for Saudi Arabia to open a a, a military base in Djibouti, which is still not uh, open, but there's uh, this project. Uh, In addition to that, so there was a very operational dimension here. The Gulf countries were launching amphibious operations on Yemen. They needed uh, to do that from the Horn of Africa. But they were also investing in uh, the local armed forces. Uh, And more and more, we saw how the Horn of Africa was impacted by uh, the the power plays between uh, Gulf countries, and in particular between Saudi Arabia and Qatar, uh, or between the UAE and uh, Qatar. That's one aspect. The other element that we saw during that same period is how uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE Uh, looked at India differently, Uh, in particular, after the arrival of Narendra Moody. This, uh, for a long time, when we were discussing Gulf-India relations, this was mostly about uh, the presence of the Indian workers, the presence of the Indian diaspora in the Gulf. But... Modi, in a sense, created a new momentum for uh, the relations uh, between uh, Gulf and India, uh, with the Crown Prince of uh, Saudi Arabia calling uh, Modi now his, uh, uh, I think he called him the his older brother, uh, which could sound extremely odd given the the uh, let's say the, the the domestic politics of uh, Modi. Uh, but what's interesting is that suddenly this was not just about business, not about just uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the Indian diaspora. There was a strategic element to that. And another element that added maybe complexity uh, to that is that uh, the, the Gulf countries also looked more and more towards China, uh, exactly during the same period. And this was, uh, in a way, the Qi uh, effect, and in particular, the uh, BRI uh, effect. Uh, What's interesting here is that we are talking about countries, the Gulf states, that for decades were anchored uh, in the uh, US orbit. Uh, And you could argue in the Western orbit uh, for centuries in a way. Uh, But in the case of uh, the US, they still rely, until today, heavily on US military uh, presence, on US security guarantees. But what we witnessed during the, the, the writing of the book is that Gulf countries uh, were testing red lines, uh, testing the red lines of Washington, uh, um, looking or selecting China, uh, Chinese company, Huawei, for the 5G network. Huawei is providing the 5G network for the six uh, Gulf states. Uh, but it also involves a military uh, dimension with uh arm sales uh between uh china saudi arabia qatar uae i mean we're not talking about uh, advanced platforms we're we're talking about drones ballistic missiles uh and more recently uh, light fighter jets but again this is a trend where you can see countries uh that were traditionally uh Clearly siding or aligned on the U.S. agenda, uh, moving towards uh, uh, China. Uh, in addition to that, um, uh, Frederick mentioned uh, the minilaterals. Something that uh, happened or emerged uh, in during the final phase of the book was how Gulf countries were also part of that minilateral phenomenon. Uh, in particular, the UAE, uh, the UAE is part of the uh, I2U2 uh, framework. So the uh, uh, this is a terrible acronym for those of you who are not familiar with this one. Uh, so it I2 for India, Israel, U2 for United States, United Arab Emirates. Uh, and something that uh, has been called sometimes uh, the, the Quad of the Middle East. Uh, although the, the UAE uh, tried to downplay uh, the China dimension being behind the I2-U2 uh, framework, because, uh, again, that would... Uh, that would go against the UAE's own engagement with China. Interestingly, the UAE is also involved in another uh, another minilateral or trilateral, whether we want to call it, which is the uh, emerging one between France, UAE, and India. So all of that also means that Gulf countries want uh, uh, to become uh, significant players of the Indian Ocean. Now, I'd like to finish on one uh, question mark, which is, which is not just for the Gulf states, but I would say for a lot of the countries in Southeast Asia, but also in, in Africa, when it comes to these ambitions, which is uh, the obvious question, how can they sustain uh, that level of ambition? Uh, for those countries, for the Gulf countries, uh, there are two, uh, two challenges. Uh, The first one is the military uh, capabilities, the military resources. It's one thing to say that we want to be uh, uh, players in the Indian Ocean, uh, but this has to translate into uh, capabilities. What we see is that those are countries with very limited naval capabilities. So when it comes to uh, operations uh, such as counter piracy or any uh, uh, major initiative in the Indian Ocean, Gulf states cannot really provide much. Uh, In addition to that, what we saw is that after the reduction of the war efforts in Yemen, most of the military bases that Gulf countries opened in uh, the Horn of Africa have been either reduced or just closed because they, they cannot afford uh, to have, like, permanent uh, military bases uh, there. That's the first challenge. The second challenge, which is uh, maybe even trickier, is the diplomatic resources. Uh, Gulf states have tremendous ambitions for very small states, uh, but at the end of the day, they face the challenge of translating the uh, the, the big goal or the major goal that rulers have or uh, for their countries at the working level, uh, meaning at uh, the level of ministries of foreign affairs. And that's usually where uh, the initiatives tend to slow down or just to be on hold. Uh, and we see that uh, on several aspects. Uh, and for instance, that's something that will be a big challenge when you have all these new initiatives at mini level, multilateral level, because this is something that is very consuming for diplomats. And when you have countries with very limited resources I mean, in terms of personnel, human resources, uh, they, they have to make choices. And uh, what we see is that they tend to go to the traditional, the, most, the safest uh, choice, which is still to rely on bilateral relations with their traditional allies. But again, uh, I, I used the, this snapshot on the gold states just to illustrate uh, one uh, One tendency, one phenomenon, which is this rise of uh, uh, new uh, states or new actors in the Indian Ocean, Uh, and I'll uh, leave it here. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Uh, thanks, Jinlu. I think uh, we've had a a good set of uh, uh, comments on introducing the book. So before I open the floor, I just wanted to ask one question to, to both of you, which is: you point to two different tendencies, right? One is the great power competition, or the strategic competition between US, China and India, and the rise of greater agency for, for regional uh, actors. But these two don't operate separately, right? I mean, there is, a, there is a dynamic interaction. Maybe you can say how that interaction you think will play out I mean, in terms of coalition building, in terms of alliances, partnerships?
1: Well, it, it, it's linked to what I was describing in terms of what is actually today a strategic issue. Uh, and <clears throat> it's changing radically the perspective, I mean, Jean-Lou was me- or maybe you mentioning the, uh, the comeback of the European power in the thing. We, European power may come back, but n- nobody will come back in the region in the same way. This is all about cooperation today. The major problems we see in the Indian Ocean all over the place is the protection of not just territorial waters, but also uh, exclusive economic zones. And the real problem that we face is that very few countries have the capacities and the capabilities to do so. Uh, So this is where the link is established. And this is where we do have a problem because existing institutions are in no way capable, today at least, to provide for that kind of uh, A capacities and B capabilities. My belief is uh, my knowledge is that there will be effort made in that direction, but we're not there yet. And this is really the key issue, and this is likely to remain the key issue for some time. Add something.
2: Yeah, I, I think the uh, the uh, the two uh, reactions we see to this uh, combination of the trends is that the level of the little states or the small states, uh, they they can use. Positively, the uh, the strategic competition as a way to attract uh, more uh, for their own uh, benefit. Uh, And you can see that some of the states play it smartly to attract China, which in a way is a way also to uh, send a message to Washington. Uh, I think that's uh, one phenomenon which is increasingly happening in the area where the U.S., had the monopoly uh, in terms of security partnerships, in terms of uh, um, multilateral uh, cooperation, and so the 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 again, when we look at this, this is uh, uh, interesting to see that those countries are courting uh, China also in a way to send a message to Washington at the level of the the U.S.-China uh, competition. Uh, I think. China has also used that, uh, that desire for agency as a way uh, to, um, to exacerbate uh, the tensions between the U.S. and its allies. Uh, and the, the most obvious case was probably the, uh, the, the latest deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran, which uh, China facilitated. Uh, it was a very... Uh, very opportunistic uh, intervention, I would say, from China because most of the diplomatic work had been done before. China probably only in- intervened late in uh, the process. But it was a good way also uh, to, um, uh, for both Saudi Arabia, who were, which was sending a message to, uh, uh, to the U.S., and for China to send another message. Uh, meanwhile, I fear that this idea of the agency of the local states is not yet either understood or accepted in the U.S. Uh, when I say that, I mean, particularly in the, the policy circles in Washington, where uh, there's a tendency uh, to, to look at this as a zero-sum game and to say that uh, those states have to uh, abide by the rules of their uh, main patron or their main partner, which is the U.S. So they especially when you look at the, 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 the Saudi Iran deal, this was received with uh, a, a lot of emotion in the U.S. and with the idea that they they didn't accept, in a sense, that agency of the local actors.
0: Gentlemen, The floor is open. So, yeah, could you just introduce yourself? <laughs>
3: First and foremost, congratulations on the book. It's difficult to talk about the book before reading it, so I will not attempt it now, but I will definitely (laughs) do so. And uh, uh, I have to say that um, I'm very uh, pleased to see that the Indian Ocean was finally defined as a security region. At first hearing, I have some doubts when you define it as a political region, simply because to me, the uh, players in the region are a bit heterogeneous. I honestly, I don't see too much uh, common ground between them. But uh, maybe the book proves me wrong. My question is that uh, we are coming across a new designation, the Indo-Pacific, which I find personally a little bit arbitrary, because a little bit arbitrary because no question about. Uh, the Indian Ocean being compact in many ways, primarily historically, culturally, geographically, no question. But to pair this with the vast and huge and uh, culturally very different Pacific region, I, I think it's a tall order. What do you think about this
0: designation? Thank you. I think it's one of the core questions.
1: Well, I. Uh, Personally, absolutely no question, no problem with the designation, because, you know, when we speak of the Indo-Pacific, we don't speak of a geographical concept. We speak of a strategic one. Uh, so strategically, it does make sense to link up the two oceans. Of course, there will be differences between the two spaces, and within the two spaces, various region and subregion, and so on. But this is not primarily a geographical thing. And this is at the core of one of the major misunderstandings that we see in the literature today. But I mean, if you accept it as a concept, I mean, this is made to do three things, basically, for most of the countries to A, manage, and I assume term manage, so there is no notion of hostility a priori the rise of China to start with. This is one key issue. The second one is definitely maintain as much as you can, U.S. security guarantees, wherever you can get them. Third, avoid being trapped in the current polarization between the U.S. and China. And therefore, you need to define it by yourself. But again, if you say that, it means that whoever defines it will define it differently from its neighbors. So, you know, this notion whether it should extend to uh, the uh the pacific or not and if you look at the various definition if you look at what the Australians, for example put in the concept whether the europeans put in the concept or even what the americans actually put in the concept and that's where uh i don't disagree with uh with jean-lou but where we could add a little caveat actually the americans are not that interested in the indian ocean anymore some of them see why it's important but i mean the focus is definitely on the pacific and the tendency is to focus all strength on the Pacific. So we are there in various configurations, which are perfectly legitimate by themselves. They just reflect natural interests of the states. But I mean, per se, the beauty of the concept, it does allow for cooperation, complementarity, and so on. But it is not focused on the Indian Ocean, the Pacific, and this is just a geographical translation of something else. You want to...
2: No, I, I think uh, Frédéric already uh, covered most of the thing. The, uh, the, the problem with the Indo-Pacific, and I remember, I think uh, I forgot the name of the commentator that um, argued when the, the concept emerged in the U.S. that the Indo part was uh, just adding India. It didn't add really the Indian Ocean. Uh, and if you look at... Because the, the most concrete implication uh, was for the... Uh, the regional uh, commands of the U.S. armed forces. Uh, and if you look at it, uh, most of uh, the Western uh, Indian Ocean is still uh, covered either by the African command or the Central Command. So the, we go back to the idea that uh, this, this emphasizes the uh, idea of the... Uh, the, 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 the strategic competition uh between the US and uh China and uh including India uh in the US narrative. Uh so that's but again as uh, as Frederick uh said this, we're not talking about like geographical uh concepts uh these are concepts which are used uh especially uh when you have to go to the Congress to uh, uh promote uh reorganization of uh, your own uh, military commands and uh to ask for uh, resources so that that would be my yeah. Uh, thanks yeah at the back can you just introduce yeah thank
4: you thank you very much i'm peter gushaba the ambassador of austria here in singapore coming from a small landlocked country i nevertheless have a few questions about uh, the indian ocean um my first question would be, uh, and um, it, it's from my personal background because I've been posted to India uh, about 15 years ago and um, and so it's a great pleasure to see <laughs> Ratra Mohan again. Um, but um, I, I, I would like to ask uh, at that time the string of pearls theory uh, was uh, there was a lot of excitement around that And you just mentioned how some of these strategic concepts there are, if if you need resources or if you want to promote ideas, you need a snazzy title. So, string of pearls was such a term from the past. How you how do you see this playing out um, in the light of of the developments that have taken place over the past 10, 15 years? Um, is 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 that still a, a danger that is seen that there will be a Uh, a number of bases, there there was some real panic. I remember some years ago that this might uh, all happen very quickly, but that was clearly not the case. And my second question would be, you've mentioned that there are very few actors actually in or around the Indian Ocean that bring ambitions or even fewer who bring capacities to the table. Um, How do you see Australia in that context? Um, there has been a lot of waves recently about Australian capacities or future Australian capacities for the for the for the Pacific. Um, is that also of relevance to the debate for the Indian Ocean? And thank you very much for the interesting uh, book discussion. Thank you. let
0: me add, there is a question from the Zoom audience on Australia. Uh, at the time of print, Frederick and Jean Luke could not have foreseen and articulated the impact of Defense and Strategic Review. This is the Australian in the Indian Ocean, uh, as the most significant update of defense planning in forty years of the Australian Defense Forces. What would they add or update in uh, Chapter Seven uh, in terms of the new developments in Australia? Maybe you can tag it along with the other questions.
1: Well, the string of pearls, I mean, that's a question for you because you have answered that many times over, observing in particular that, you know, there was a clear disconnect between what Buzz Hamilton described as the pearls of the string uh, and so on. I think what's interesting in that is the dynamic that it created. There was clearly an element, a purely domestic element, US element in it. I mean, this is a contractor for uh, the u.s government which of course is trying to maximize his benefits and, and and used it nevertheless part of the dynamic is very much there i mean look at the struggle for influence between india and china in all the various small islands of the indian ocean and you do have the answer uh, nobody is very comfortable today uh with what's happening with ambatota uh, us as european first although i mean I would love the uh, Europeans to realize it a little more, because on, but, uh, I mean, Sri Lanka is just on a straight line between Babel and Malacca, and therefore it would make sense if the expression "protecting the sea lane of communication" has any meaning. To start working seriously on that and try to do things which would matter for the region, but clearly this is exactly what we are talking about. So it doesn't matter whether the string of pearls was just that. It was a very catchy phrase, still a very catchy phrase. I mean, the dynamic is still there. Now, in this, it would suggest that there was um, uh, a level of uh, planification which maybe was not there at the beginning. That is true also for Sri Lanka, again. uh, Because um, Umbattata was not supposed to be built initially at that by, by China, it's not, it's not to uh, China that the, uh, the uh, Sri Lankanats first and so on. So, but at the same time, I mean, now things are crystallizing in a different way. So that's where we are. So does it still mean something? Yes and no. Uh, the limits being what the, uh, I just described now. The question about Australia was, sorry, uh,
0: he's talking the same thing as the australian review of its options uh, creating new long-range capabilities focus i mean well, australia has become the australian
1: review was creating long-range capability for the americans in the pacific uh if we look at the actual the, the nature of the uh, contract that is ongoing, the point here is not uh, be, because we were talking of the nuclear propelled submarine then we we're talking of all the rules about non proliferation and so on. And therefore we're not talking about technology transfer of any kind. Uh, and this is very public. This was in the New York Times not so long ago and so on. That means a kind of relationship between Australia and, uh, and the US that did not exist to the same extent before, that is still looking primarily at the Pacific. Will it have consequences in the Indian Ocean, I don't know. I don't know exactly what the Australians are planning to use those for, but I mean, this is something else. Uh, now, what's interesting with Australia is that there is a gradual, gradual reconnaissance of the importance of the Indian Ocean. I mean, not so long ago, the Australian looked exclusively at the Pacific. Today, the, And today when they speak of the Indian Ocean, they still speak primarily of the Northern Indian Ocean uh, because their basis are cocoa and Christmas, but uh, not much about the the other part of it. Uh, Nevertheless, there is a growing consciousness of it which has not yet materialized except for one thing, which is the kind of agreement that Australia is currently developing with India in many ways, and which details I don't know. But I mean, this is the uh, an indication. I mean, the fact that they are willing to resume the dialogue with the French, for example, goes in at the same time in the direction. I mean, this is still primarily about the Pacific because that's where we have the most common interest there. But I mean, there is also uh, an Indian Ocean dimension which is okay. present, but which is still to be developed and uh, defined. You, you want
0: it? Yeah. Okay. Ambassador yeah. No, yeah, no, You want to ask?
5: Uh,
0: thank you for a fascinating introduction to a book we obviously must read. But I was wondering this framework that you've developed of great power rivalry and the agency of literal states how does that apply to the Bay of Bengal?
1: Well, this is a question that you should answer, not because the big power there is definitely India, uh, because of the opposition in Andaman and Nicobar. To start with, uh, it does apply with in connection with uh, the custodian state of the Malacca Strait. I mean, of the strait in general. That is uh, Singapore, of course, Malaysia, Indonesia, and so on. So this is what we see, and, and we are in Singapore, so there is no need to underline the strong European uh, American presence. Uh, that's the way I think it works mostly in the area. But I'm willing and ready to be corrected. <laughs>
6: okay. Ambassador Kudushev? Yeah. Thank you so much. Sir. Well, my name is Nikolai Kudushev. I'm Russian ambassador to the Republic of Singapore. I was also once or twice posted to the dreamland of India, and I keep best memories of this outstanding country. I've got one question only. Well, in Moscow State, these are the last days of the world, world of the world of colonialism. The new layout is emerging, a new multipolar, multilateral system. The system is is there already. So uh, whether it really makes sense to try to position, to place the, the Indian Ocean region into the rigid formula of in the pacific or whether we need to or, or whether we need a larger larger layout larger formula of the eurasian of the eurasian partnership bringing together russia seo india china and the and the and the iora countries to uh, fit uh, to feed the growing aspirations of the regional countries big or small thank you so much
1: but sir be careful because if you include the ior countries now you include us as well so you may not be that happy about it <laughs>
0: anything to add okay. but i think one of the things we didn't do in the book is always easy to criticize authors for what they've not done uh, really with the russian role uh, in the indian ocean i mean in many ways i think just as the europeans are coming back the russians too as a major arms supplier uh, in Africa, actually, I don't know if you deal with it in the Africa chapter, but really the, the Russian presence is today a pretty impressive one, and uh, while they don't bring in the kind of economic heft that the Chinese bring, but, but they certainly bring a lot of military capabilities, and certainly they've taken the uh, eaten the French lunch uh, in, uh, in Africa. Sort of.
1: Well, let's see about that because a close examination. So they haven't really taken a French lunch, and there are two parallel dynamics, which are the decline of our uh, of uh, ill policies on the one side, which do not necessarily correspond with the the push of Russia on the one side. But this is true that we could have and probably should have honestly uh, include some consideration about Russia. Russia. Um, yeah, you know, at the same time, it's not clear the way we could have done it. If we look, I mean, the most obvious thing which come to my mind, if we speak up, the so Russia is Comoros on the one side, is the Mozambique on the other one. Uh, and on, in the Mozambique, we see what? We see essentially um, uh, mercenary society operating for God knows whom, we don't know because of course, The Russian state denies any involvement in that. And in the Comoros, this is a very different story. In the Comoros, I mean, uh, uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs Lavrov has condemned twice the role of France and so on and so forth, wonderful. Uh, What Russia has actually brought to the country, I still want to see it. uh, And I'm sure the Comorian would love to see it. Now, beyond the... uh, beyond the, um, uh, the condemnation of colonialism and so on, which is wonderful, except that the real problem is the decolonization, not the other way around. And let me say that this is a much more difficult process than, uh, than uh, coming into the same thing, especially when there is a democratic vote behind it, such as Mayotte, which voted twice in favor of remaining in France, this is very difficult. Uh, so, which way should, should we have addressed uh, the Russian role? I'm not too sure about that. But we have addressed it, yes, probably. We probably didn't have the uh, what it requires to do something really, really interesting. But I would love to have your view, sir, about this uh, the Russian role in the, the region and the Indian Ocean. Come back.
2: Can I add just? Yeah, uh, sure. I mean, uh, because we actually. Uh, Uh, look very indirectly uh, at Russia's role, uh, but mostly from an historical point of view. Uh, What was interesting, actually, when we uh, uh, wrote on the uh, the evolution of the U.S. perception on the Indian Ocean is that for a long time, actually, uh, during the Cold War, the Indian Ocean was actually simply looked through the lens of the U.S.-Soviet Union uh, competition. And in a way, we go back to this idea that... uh, it was always seen through the lens of great power competition that was just replaced, uh, uh, in a sense, by uh, the U.S.-China uh, competition. Uh, apart from that, the uh, the as uh, Frederick said, we had to make some choices. The uh, let, let me I'll, I'll share uh, the the skepticism in the sense that, for instance, I I talked about Gulf countries, and this is an area where usually uh, in the last years uh, uh, there has been a lot of talks on uh, the growing ties between Russia and Gulf states. At the same time, in terms of the volume, uh, trade volume, uh, or military cooperation, this is extremely modest. So, uh, And and this is not to dismiss uh, the relations, obviously, but just to say that, uh, again, because we had to make choices and uh, our publisher wanted to to stick to... uh, uh, eight, uh, uh, eight, um, uh, sorry, uh, eighty thousand words. Uh, we had to uh, uh, to ignore some uh, some of the countries, uh, but again, we do have uh, a few mentions in the book on Russia.
0: Thanks, uh, Sin- Dr. Sindhapal Singh. from Rajat,
5: or Rajaram. Cindapal ah, Rajaram School. Thank you. I think firstly the point is well made that you know there's very little like single author or even edited books on the Indian Ocean. I teach a master's level course at the Rajarandam school on Indian Ocean security. So this is probably gonna go uh, on the reading list. So thank you for that. I just thank got you. three or four, you know, very brief you know, questions, reflections. The first is Dr. Saman talked about agency of the Saudi Arabian case. Um, surely you can talk about that without using the analytical category of the Indian Ocean, right? The, India, the us saudi Arabia relationship got, you can talk about it without talking about the Indian Ocean. So firstly, I wonder what, what does it do for the, uh, And that leads to the second point. The Indian Ocean region is actually quite unique because it's nearly completely defined by its maritime orientation. We don't have any kind of counterpart to that, right? Which then leads to the third point, which is the referral of security is very important, right? And here you got a big split, Raja and me and Raja more than me, We involved in a lot of track two conversations at IORA level, and you can always see the split the room. So I'm talking about you fishing, rising water level, some states say, oh no, great power competition. So here the referendum of security is a very interesting debate, which then leads to my fourth point, which is for better or for worse, there's been a collapse now between treating traditional and non-traditional security matters separately, largely because things like IUU fishing now can be traced back to one state. Overfishing can be traced back to one state. It used to be that non-traditional security was not a threat, not coming from a specific state. So I don't know what that does for your book or your analysis, but I thought that was a very interesting point, that somehow the, the boundaries are becoming collapsed. Thank you, Raja, thanks. You want to
0: start this time? Uh,
2: So I'll address the the, the first question on agency, and it's a great question because uh, it actually uh, provides us the ability to uh, go deeper into the analysis of the book. uh, And you're right to say that uh, the uh, idea of those states have uh, agency uh, doesn't imply uh, uh, explicitly anything for the Indian Ocean in itself. Uh, what we explain in the book is that it has several implications. First, when those states uh, have greater ambitions in terms of the governance of the Indian Ocean. Uh, one example, uh, and while we were writing the book, the uh, UAE was chairing the uh, uh, Indian Ocean Ream Association. Uh, and this was, uh, I think, the second time in two or three decades that they did that. Uh, and the uh played a significant role uh, to uh, uh, support the French uh, application to the uh, association. So that's a typical uh, uh, example where you see that uh, one of the small states uh, has ambitions that are not just uh, having implication, implications for its own foreign policy, but uh, for the the collective, the regional uh, level. Uh, In a sense, uh, we cannot discuss governance in the Indian Ocean without uh, factoring in uh, these new uh, ambitions. The second aspect, which is even more complex, in a sense, is that those new states or those new actors can also interfere in other sub-regions of the Indian Ocean. And again, uh, uh, using Gulf states, we saw that in the Horn of Africa, how they uh, meddled uh, with the uh, local uh, competition in Somalia, uh, or Eritrea and Ethiopia. But you could argue also that the way Saudi Arabia and UAE are increasingly siding uh, with India had an effect on Pakistan. Uh, And the way... uh, Saudi Arabia and uh, the UAE started uh, supporting diplomatically uh, Indian uh, Indian strikes after I, I forgot I think it was in 2017 or 16 something that they would not have done in the past. But again, what I why I mentioned that is that these new ambitions have uh, implications for other subregions uh, of the uh, uh, of the uh, the Indian Ocean. So that's why uh, we connected the idea of agency with the level of indian uh, ocean governance you
1: want to say something no, uh well on IO fishing first of all i disagree this is not just about one country uh i mean first of all if we speak of uh, somalia somalia has been the mother of all problems in the region uh, for some time uh initially there was not the chinese the chinese came in to fight piracy not to uh, uh, now the situation is reversed because uh, they wonderfully sign an agreement for 100, uh, 100 boats uh, fishing in uh, Somalian waters, and have uh, about thousand roughly. This this is the magnitude. Uh, now, what China the specificity of China that is using this activity as a, uh, as a way to pursue a strategic objectives. Now there is something interesting to observe, and this is just a correlation, not necessarily a causality. But you know, the uh, decision to subsidize heavily long-distance fisheries in China was decided about the same time than uh, the BRI, and this is all under Xi Jinping. I'm not saying that uh, this is the only reason that we should be some sort of a larger strategy let alone conspiracy uh, because there were also reasons for, uh, I mean, Chinese waters were depleted, and the interesting thing is that the Chinese were also anything abroad but were extremely severe in the way they were managing their own waters uh, for good reason, because they had uh, wonderfully uh, destroyed it for for decades. But, I mean, you know, there was a dynamic again of that kind that we, we saw that. as to the link between the two I mean, that's what I've been trying to describe earlier. This is clearly uh, the blurring of all lines right now. And this applies to a number of things which were totally unrelated to uh, strategic issues before. And that's the major problem we're all confronted with. You know, who cares whether China finance, I don't know, a small port or whatever elsewhere. But I mean, everybody cares if that small port can become a base simply because the dependency is such that the local state will not be able to refuse anything that's a very different problem so you know that are highly fungible and that's the the problem we collectively face today so yeah.
7: thank you um uh, tim winter from the asia research institute here at nus um, uh, um fascinating talk and a great book obviously a great contribution so um i'm coming from this from a different discipline and and um and i'm interested in that idea you week you mentioned that you've, you're identifying a clear distinction between hard and soft security and i'm wondering what that means today um in relation to oceans so we we've heard a lot about countries and i've been reading a lot about and my head's in the space of ocean ontologies and you actually take the ocean as your starting point of analysis so rather than seeing countries and seeing the ocean as a passive actor start with the ocean and the ocean in excess and how that reframes global politics and global geopolitics and we start from that perspective and actually i thought it was a gimmick but actually it's quite a powerful way to rethink what we're talking about so the high seas treaty a few weeks ago um the bbnj the biodiversity beyond national jurisdiction is now uh, a critical element in kind of the transition to clean energy futures this is going to be a, a scramble for the ocean floor And so that's and that's kind of um, supposedly taken us a step forward in the global governance kind of uh, uh, quagmire that we've we've experienced the last few decades from the beginnings of UNCLOS. So so in your definitions of security, uh, you've mentioned fisheries, but. The ocean, in itself, in terms of the its volumetric space, it's it's a, it's no longer a kind of surface security discourse. It's a it's a it's a complex space to think through. So what I'm getting at is that what's that distinction between? Yes, you mentioned fish, but, but the ocean has all this water security, food security, energy transition securities, all the types of new ways and think we think we need to think about. Alliances are being built around the decade of human ocean, the you know the, the decade of oceans, sustainable oceans, we're in the you know second third year of that, I think. So how does that alliances speak to what the ocean itself? I, mean, I guess that's a provocation to think how does that, how might that fit into what you're talking about? So oceanic history, exactly. Well, Welsh, yeah. so can I have one final point? Oceanic history is the Indo-Pacific. If you're looking at the Indo-Pacific from an Indonesia, it is absolutely a historical cultural category. So Indonesia today is pushing a uh, spice uh, phenomena or spice history, spice future is a way to see that it's central to Pacific and Indian Ocean histories that puts Indonesia back in a kind of geocultural, geopolitical past and future in exactly the same way as what China is doing with the Belt and Road Initiative and what India is doing with Project Norsen. Absolutely. So, yeah, so it depends where you're looking from to kind of construct those imaginaries of past and futures. So what does happen when China starts digging for lithium and cobalt exactly, in, yeah, yeah, in the ocean? Yeah. So like that. so that was a long point, but.
1: <laughs> you want, to or you want... First of all, I mean we will face the same. Well, first of all, BBNG is only a, a step in the right direction. Well, I cannot refrain from noting the fisheries that fisheries are absent for BBNG, uh, which allows a number of things because you know, what we observe in that specific, and sorry to insist a bit on that, but this is, this is absolutely central, uh, is that you look at the Indian Ocean, it's reasonably well structured when it comes to tuna fish or tuna live fish and, and for nothing else. What used to be Chinese arriving for in the uh, international waters, looking for squid, then penetrating markets in a very different way. Now, for every other activity, you will be faced with the same problem that we, you, we have been faced uh, before with any matter related to international security. And the ocean have a specificity that they are even more difficult to control than any other space in, uh, in the world. And they are more difficult to control because, you know, there is nobody to watch. So yes, you can act well as satellite, but then even if you see the Chinese mining, what will you really do? And how long before you can move significantly? And how much are you ready to risk in political capital, not even talking of security risk in your relation with China? That's the kind of problem we're gonna face with. So yes, BBNG sets some standards, and as such, it's but you know, the ocean are becoming what you say, precisely because of the human factor. I mean, the ocean have sort of an equilibrium by themselves, but they do become uh, they do become an entity potentially influencing human activities through human activities. So I'm not entirely sure that this uh, distinction is, from that perspective, entirely relevant. which is not to deny the role of the, uh, the ocean themselves. Uh, certainly not in the as eloquently as you just did, but this is uh, this is uh, the way I, I would look at it.
2: Yeah, just to uh, yeah. Uh, follow up and uh, because I, I think it's a it's an interesting uh, um, counter argument. Uh, unfortunately, though, what we saw uh, in our research is that. If this was the, a shared perspective, organizations such as YORA or the Indian Ocean Commission wouldn't be much stronger because there would be a shared perception that the um, uh, that the uh, the ocean should be the center of the cooperation between all the states in the the area. Uh, in the end, what we see is that most of the security priorities are defined uh, onshore. And when it comes to the discussion, I mean, I'm, I'm saying. Governments perceive differently. I'm not saying this is the right way to look at it, but that uh, as of today, uh, discussion, policy is uh, looking at it first with the Indian contour, and the Indian Ocean is seen in a way as uh, uh, the, uh, the, the passage uh, for that. Uh, I think it was Ashley Tellis who said that uh, the Indian Ocean is first and foremost just a gateway, gateway, uh, and. I'm not saying that this is a good way, but that also explains why uh, a lot of the actors in the area do not consider that uh, there is this coherent uh, unite or political entity or political complex, such as the Indian Ocean. And the reason why uh, there's been this struggle for having um, regional institutions uh, that would be uh, legitimate and have. The, Capability to uh, uh, promote that type of cooperation. Uh, again, I'm not saying this is uh, what uh, we uh, uh, we believe, but that's unfortunately the perception until today uh, from the government.
0: Yeah.
3: um thank you so much. Speaking to.
1: McCarthy Nachipan, um, ISIS and US. Um, you talked about the agency of Gulf, Gulf states, um, Saudi Arabia, UAE. Can you maybe share a little bit more about the other states, Iran, Turkey, what's their role here and how do they fit into
0: your story? Thanks.
1: It's all for you.
2: <laughs> uh... Well, I mean, Iran in particular would uh, would be an interesting case here uh, as we talk about the Indian Ocean, uh, less so for Turkey uh, right now on the spot. Uh, but Iran has always uh, had uh, ambitions. Uh, it's part of the uh, Indian Ocean Naval Symposium. Uh, it has uh, naval ambitions, although, again, it's uh, uh, limited, uh, limited resources beyond uh, what they can do. Uh, in the, the Strait of Hormuz, um, or let's say in the uh, the Gulf of Oman, um, but beyond that, yeah, they they do have uh, this, especially uh, with the uh, the latest uh, deal. Because I'm not sure if uh, you, that's what you're uh, thinking of the uh, the deal with Saudi Arabia and uh, the role of uh, China. Uh, what's interesting is that this is a a case where Iran had historically uh, strong ties with China uh, since the eighties. And in the last years, there was this assumption that because China is getting closer to the Gulf States, Iran is being marginalized. Uh, Iran uh, is no longer uh, on the the, the list of uh, strong partners in the region for China. Uh, What we see now is that actually Iran might be uh, benefiting more than Saudi Arabia or any Gulf states from this growing Chinese presence. Uh, Because we discussed mostly about how Saudi Arabia is sending a message to Washington. But what China is doing is what Iran has been asking for decades to marginalize the Americans and uh, from the, uh, uh, the region. Uh, so here you have, yeah, I would say that you have another illustration of how uh, one of the local states is using, exploiting the uh, the strategic competition here in particular between the U.S. and China for its own benefit. Uh, but again, beyond that, uh, we're talking about a country that uh, uh, has uh, also very uh, limited resources or struggling with its own resources. Uh, diplomatically, economically, or uh, militarily. So what Iran can do uh, uh, beyond its own sub-region uh, will, uh, will be, uh, I'd say, modest.
0: Okay. Is there any other questions? Otherwise, I'm going to just offer a few closing comments and uh, I'll bring this to an end. Uh, I think one, I think we've really had a very, very stimulating uh, discussion so let me just uh, you know I'm not going to sum it up, but at least uh, highlight some of the issues uh, that that came up, and and give my uh, response to that. One I think uh, in talking about the Indo-Pacific, uh, its evolution as an idea, uh, I think it's important. I think next time you write when you do the second edition of the book, uh, do put in a a bit on Japan because when you deal with Australia. Uh, because it's really, in many ways, uh, it's often underestimated, we don't give much credit to the Japanese, and never been uh, leaders, but today, the entire last 15 years, the Indo-Pacific has largely been driven by them. Uh, it's really they who conceived this idea of uh, confluence of two oceans, of breaking the paradigm, I mean, that, that there was an Indian Ocean, there was a Pacific Ocean, to one of actually framing it as a, as a single theme. And they're also the ones who within the region are offering competition to China. Yeah. On the BRIF, because Japanese don't have a communist party, so they're not as good in the propaganda. Uh, for example, I mean imagine coming up with a term like PQI. Can can you get it off your tongue? It'll be great. Partnership for quality infrastructure. Uh, they put real money up there, and I think they have a longer history than China for the West in developing infrastructure in this part of the world. And today now they're talking about their own. The rearmament, if you will, as well as developing new concepts of deploying their large amounts of economic assistance for strategic purposes, as well as initiating overseas security assistance, which is a, a new phenomenon and some of it will flow to the Indian Ocean, uh, especially Bangladesh is on the top of their uh, top of the list. so that covers the Bay of Bengal uh, a bit a bit. So, so I would say and then are they also into Africa, the so-called TICAD or the the Tokyo International Conference on African development uh, is is again a part of this network, and I think they have links in in, in the Gulf as well. So I would say uh, Japan's role in the conceptualization and and in uh, in doing things, uh, you know, shaping the Indian Ocean, I think will be important. I think that might be a valuable addition. The second uh, thing I wanted to talk about uh, was the, the, the expansion and shrinkage in simultaneous—that is, the Indian Ocean becomes the Indo-Pacific—but at the same time, the subregions have actually new subregions have emerged. New, in a sense, for us, relatively new. Uh, for example, the idea of Eastern Indian Ocean, uh, which you mentioned in Indonesia as the as the 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 the, the uh, Nusantara that connects, uh, you know, Indian Ocean with the Pacific Ocean, all the sea lines of communication between the two. Uh, come through the, the archipelago uh, of uh, of Indonesia, uh, so I think this idea of subregions because you're never going to construct a single architecture. It is going to be uh, interesting how this pans out in the subregions. Whether it's the Bay of Bengal, for example, uh, a Chinese uh, if they develop the Chakpu Island, if they build military facilities on Cocos, uh, if they submarines come into the submarines coming to the Andamans on, on a on a regular basis, you are going to see are specific responses in specific sub-regions. So I think it's useful to think of, See, if you start from the corner, the Horn of Africa, as a region we did not think about it in that form. Or even if we go a little further, the Eastern Mediterranean, Israel, Egypt, Greece, France, uh, working against Qatar, Turkey, uh, willing to work with India as well, Cyprus. And so you have actually the Eastern Mediterranean tying up with the, uh, the Horn of Af- Africa region or the, or the, or the, or the Indian Ocean. And then you come to the return of the Mozambique Channel. What was in the when the colonial powers had to come around Africa. Uh, today, the Chinese search for resources from Africa actually reconnects many of the, the Western Indian Ocean islands uh, into, the, into the debate. And there, I think, uh, again, the, the Western Indian Ocean as a region, or within that, uh, where uh, France is active, for example, in the Indian Ocean Commission, uh, your old colonial positions. But nevertheless, they acquire a character today uh, as, as critical islands, which are out for uh, competition uh, within that. And then if we move further, the Arabian Sea, the Bay of Bengal, the Eastern Indian Ocean, uh, every one of these subregions, I think how they, it act, and Southern Oceans, we didn't talk about it, but the idea right in the deep south uh, of the Indian Ocean, there again, uh, this dynamic of the strategic competition versus the local agency will, I think, uh, play out. So, so we need to both think of the Indian Ocean as a whole, as well as its subregions that cut across into the, uh, into the uh, Indo-Pacific. Third, I think there was a question on a string of pearls. I think what we're seeing is, irrespective of the phrase, the emerging powers are seeking bases. Uh, after all, they're doing exactly what the European powers did, that if you become a trading nation, you build a large navy, and since you can't fax a navy to a distant corner, you have to create bases. So I think bases are facilities, bases are natural component of expansion of uh, naval power and projection of naval power. And I think it's going to be inevitable. I mean, now we had the first base, uh, Frederick talked about uh, Djibouti, uh, the speculation what China might do in Cambodia, a speculation of what they're doing in the South Pacific Islands, the speculation maybe on the east coast of Africa, maybe there'll be another base. Uh, so, so I think it's a so Djibouti is the first and it's certainly not the last. So I think you're going to see a lot more natural consequence of the rise of uh, Chinese maritime power would involve uh, the creation of new bases. We're just at the beginning of the process. China is not alone. France has a base in the UAE. Russians are trying to have something in Syria. I don't know if there are any other place that have. Uh, India too has you know, euphemistically what we call turnaround facilities, uh, you know, special arrangements where you want to service your Navy, move it around so so i would say it is going to be it's not just the you know european powers who are going to have bases uh, we're going to have the local powers also going to get bases and the you mentioned the gulf countries the uae has bases uh, turkey has bases uh, you have saudi arabia so you're going to see a lot more local power projection acquiring like somaliland i mean outrageously taking position of a part of another country and declaring it as a separate entity. So, so we, we're going to see small countries do big power politics. So I think that's one of the more fascinating aspects of uh, what's happening uh, in the in the Indian Ocean. So basis is going to be part of life. And there was a time when we used to say nobody should have basis. India doesn't say it anymore. I mean, it tells you uh, something about India's own uh, policy today. The fourth point I wanted to mention was on the, on the burden sharing of that. that that one way the intersection of the strategic competition and local agency plays out uh, is the effort by the U.S. that it doesn't want to do it all by itself, that it wants capable partners. It doesn't want any more passengers uh, on its uh, ship, that it prefers now today to read the national security strategy uh, of the Biden administration. Says explicitly they want to have stronger partners who are capable of generating some deterrence of their own. I think the mobilization of Germany in Europe against Russia and the Japan against China is part of that effort to create local capabilities. And I think that principle that they're willing to support the building up of the capabilities of regional powers so that the structure of a network of coalitions that can come up uh, to build deterrence inside, that means involving Transfer of weapons, uh, military capabilities, logistical arrangements. So you can do a whole lot of things without having to put their own boots on the ground to help uh, other countries, uh, local powers to. Uh, depends on who uh, you're going to do it with your friends. Uh, hopefully, they'll remain your friends before they before they turn to the other side. But I think this is a new element that I think that the two processes uh, interact with themselves. And finally, about the Indo-Pacific, I mean, I would say, look, if you cut all the verbiage around it the uh, Indo-Pacific was about putting India into the Pacific. You know, to get India to be part of that coalition, and that's the reason why when the Americans initially talked about Bollywood to Hollywood or was the conception of the Indo-Pacific. I mean, they're trying to modify it a bit, but I think it's quite clearly it's about drawing India into a nation coalition to balance China. And that's at least my view. That's not the official government. of India would never say that, but, but I think the fact is The idea of drawing India in uh, is the the core strategic purpose, and I think that is rooted in some kind of history. So it's not that, if you go back to the Second World War, uh, it was the Indian Army, uh, nearly a million of them, uh, in the Burma campaign, who largely pushed out the Japanese out of Burma, took the surrender of the Japanese troops in Rangoon, uh, in uh, Singapore, Jakarta, and Hanoi. So this, So, so Saigo, yeah. So you have actually the so to suggest that India has nothing to do with uh, East, you know, with the East Asia or the Pacific Ocean. I think is wrong historically, because there was no separation of these two oceans under the British period. You had India, you had China, you had Japan, you had Indochina, you had uh, East Indies or further Indies. So I think these categories of separating them was a post-colonial construction which involved actually. India's withdrawal from the regional security architecture, and India is trying to come back today. But but it's not going to be easy for India to be a big player like it was in the second Second World War. But I think it is India's growing Indian capabilities. How does it contribute to the uh, to the regional security uh, in the in the East? And, and and the Japanese doing more in the Indian Ocean, or the Chinese doing a larger role? Chinese playing a larger role in the in the Indian Ocean. So there, that is the the shift that is taking place of uh, China coming to the Indian Ocean, India doing a little bit in the in the in the in the in the Pacific Ocean. that I think is the new combination and within which uh, there will be a whole lot of new dynamics, as we said in the in the East Indian Ocean, et cetera. So, so I think we are really into a a new phase uh, in the uh, in the in this region, and the book, I would say, really helps us to at least begin to think about some of the emerging challenges. Uh, I'm not obsessed with architecture. Because I don't think you're never going to have architecture gives you a sense of permanence. That these is, things
1: have cost facts yeah. all the time.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but this is something you—it's going to evolve. I mean, it's not you can't have a, a design in which you build a house, but a a historical process that will unfold. And uh, one of the variables we don't have control over the domestic politics of these countries as well. So, so I think. But the book, I think it's uh, as as, as said, uh, there's not enough written on the Indian Ocean. I think this really. Uh, valuable contributions. So I want to thank both of you for organizing, and the MEI and the ISAS for organizing this.